where we're continuing our journey through the Ten Commandments. Um, today, coming to commandment number seven, and I can't tell you how many uh, times on the way in, people have asked me, is, I, is today going to be as heavy as last week? Um, if you weren't with us last week, we talked about you shall not murder. Um, last week was a very heavy message. And to be honest, in preparation for this week, I, I, I kind of was leaning like, you shall not commit adultery would be kind of right on the par of, of heaviness of you shall not murder. And in, in some ways it is. But I'm going to be honest, like, I, I found... It sounds really odd saying it this way. I found this text so encouraging. Um, And it's not because of the command, you shall not commit adultery. It's when we're starting to see God's plan laid out for marriage and life and from from Genesis to Revelation. You start to look and, and see the text and you're like, man, God is in every detail. <laughs> like every single detail. So find great encouragement here. Um, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And just a brief personal disclaimer um, here. I'm attempting to be very wise with the word choices and sensitive with the word choice today, um, as you can imagine with, with a text like this. At the same time, I do want to give the parental advisory, the parental kind of heads up here um, that you may be home this afternoon and your child may like use a word and you're like, where did you hear that? Well, from Pastor Jeremy. Uh, so you're welcome. Um, but in, in all, honestly, um, like it, at least they're hearing it in a biblical context um, and it, it's laced with biblical truth, a far cry from the culture that we live in that has trivialized and, and even embraced adultery as a, just a normal part of life. It's not only depicted in our entertainment, in many ways we see it celebrated um, throughout our entertainment in, in our culture. But the seventh commandment reminds us that adultery isn't new. This is one of humanity's very first sins. Ecclesiastes is right. There, there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing. So with all that in mind, the, the overarching question we need to answer this morning is, why is this commandment so important? Meaning, why is this commandment, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, why is this found within the Ten Commandments? And to answer this question, we're going to do what we did last week, and we're going to answer a series of questions, starting with, what is marriage? And we start with this question of, what is marriage? Because adultery doesn't exist if marriage doesn't exist. So turn with me, if you would, to, to Mark chapter 10. Obviously, keep your finger in Exodus chapter 20, but turn with me to Mark chapter 10, where Jesus is teaching about divorce. And the religious leaders are asking him in that moment, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And, and instead of giving just a straightforward yes or no, which we would all appreciate, like, can you just give us some clear, like, yes, no, um, no, maybe so, just give it to us. And what does Jesus do here? I love what Jesus does here. He does what we all should do in this moment or any moment when we receive such a question as this. He points us back to the Bible. He points us to Genesis. So Mark chapter 10, verse six, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two 
but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus here quoting from Genesis chapter two. But what we wanna do here is we wanna look at four things from these verses here in Mark chapter 10 that help us define what marriage is. Starting with marriage is God's design. Look again at verse six. From the beginning of creation, God made. And everything that follows those two words, God made, is about marriage in that text. So it's God who made marriage. And as the creator of marriage, God has creator rights over marriage. He has creator rights over his creation, meaning he alone defines what marriage is, who can be married, what marriage looks like as an institution, and that's what we want to know. That's what we want to look at today. We don't care what our culture says. We're not looking for the latest opinion polls. But what does the Bible say about God's design for marriage? Well, let's look again at the text here in, in Mark chapter 10. And what comes next? God designed two genders. Male and female. God made them male and female. God created one biological male and one biological female and created them in his image for his glory to be his representatives in the earth. Created man and woman with, with different roles, beautiful, distinct, God-glorifying roles, but with equal value and dignity. All of this happening in Genesis 1 and 2 prior to the fall, meaning any alteration, any alteration or departure from God's original design to, to marriage or sexuality or to gender is to be understood as a result of the fall in Genesis chapter three. It's the product of sin, not God's original design. God, number three, God designed marriage as a one flesh union. Jesus saying in verse seven, as he quotes there in Genesis chapter two, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So one man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, one wife. So one biological male and one biological female, they, they, they unite in marriage, and the consummation of that marriage is the covenant sign of the man and woman becoming one flesh. The two becoming one. This, this is an intimacy that's never to be shared with someone other than our spouse. Whether it's before marriage or during marriage. God designing sex exclusively for marriage. Intending, in designing it this way, intending that every time the married couple comes together in sexual union, we are to be reminded of this covenant. So if you're married, be reminded of your covenant often. Number four, God designed marriage to be a lifelong covenant. Verse nine. And Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What Jesus is teaching is that since only God can create marriage, then only God himself can end marriage. 
God intending marriage to last until death. It's why part of our, our marriage vows is until death do us part. Marriage is a lifelong covenant one to another. So that's what, that's what marriage is in a nutshell. But what leads then is to a question that most people, especially those outside of the church, will not think to ask. But a very important question that we need to ask. What does marriage have to do with the church? What is marriage, what is your marriage, what is our marriage, what does marriage in general have to do with the church? And the answer is everything. And to see how, turn with me now to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five, where Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, is discussing the relationship and, the, and roles between husbands and wives. He's talking about how the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Christ loving the church how? By living for her and dying for her. Undescribable, undeniable, sacrificial love. And then the wife submitting to her husband as to the Lord. Not to men in general, but to her husband as unto the Lord. Now, as fun as this would be to dive into in more detail, I think I'm pretty far in with the text where I'm already at, so I'll have to save this topic for, for another day. But referring back to Genesis chapter two, and notice how Paul and Jesus are going back to Genesis over and over again. Like we're going back, we want our answer when it comes to marriage. We want our answer to God's design. We're going back to Genesis one and two, as should we. But Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the Bible is telling us that marriage was created by God to be a visible picture to the world of the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ being the groom and the church being the bride. The husband demonstrating Christ's covenant commitment to the church through his lifelong sacrificial faithfulness to his wife. And the wife demonstrating that the church's faithful submission to Christ through her lifelong faithful submission to her husband. None of this being easy. If we think this is easy and anybody wants to approach it that way, it is not easy. We know this is not easy. Requires a, a continual dying to self. But who is glorified when marriage functions as God designed? God. God is glorified when marriage functions as he designed, which is his intention from before the foundations of the world were even laid, he had marriage on the mind. When God designed marriage, he did so with the church in mind. You think about that. When God designed the institution of marriage, he did so with the church in mind, which is another reason why we, we don't have the freedom to redefine marriage. Which brings us to our third question. What is adultery? I don't think we need to go into too much detail in defining this. It's plain and simple. Adultery is marital infidelity. So a, a breaking of the marriage covenant through sexual infidelity. 
And we're not playing any postmodern linguistic word games here of like, well, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. This isn't a game of semantics here. God is very clear. You shall not commit adultery. No wiggle room. There's no gray area. You shall not commit adultery. And to prove it, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We looked here last week with the sixth commandment. This is Jesus again on the Sermon of the Mount where he's expanding on what is meant by the sixth and the seventh commandments, giving some commentary, if you will. He, he's expositing the text and drawing out some application. So Matthew chapter five, picking up in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We're gonna pause there for now. We'll return there in just a minute. But Jesus making it clear that adultery is more than a physical act of infidelity. It's no doubt physical, but it's not limited to the physical. It's also mental and emotional. As he says, everyone who looks at a woman, could be a man, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, with him in his or her heart. So looking upon another with lustful intent is adultery. Doesn't mean that if you notice somebody is attractive, that is that you have committed adultery. But if you are lusting upon that person with sexual adulterous intent, you have committed adultery. Jesus' words taking us back, whether we realize it or not, to the first and second commandments. And I want to show you how. Think about this. The first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me, right? First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So one God, that's it. And we are to love the Lord our God with what? With all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We are to love God exclusively. Now, obviously different relationship, but we are to love our spouse, how? Exclusively. No other is to take their place, not physically, not mentally, not emotionally. And now then, what is the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself any carved images or any likeness of any kind. So second commandment is you shall not have any idols. And if you haven't listened to the sermon on the second commandment yet, I would strongly encourage you to go back and do so to give more context to this. But we aren't to create an image of God or anything else that is to stir our hearts to, to worship God. Why? Because we don't know what God looks like. Even the, the pictures that we have hanging on walls that we see in different places of Jesus, we don't know what Jesus looks like. So any image that we have that leads us to worship is, is, is a false image. Which means if that image is leading us to worship and it's a false image, what is it going to lead us to do? To lead us to worship a false understanding of God. Even if it's with the best of intentions, it leads us to what? It leads us to false worship. It's worshiping the creature or the created instead of the creator. And when we do that, when we worship even with the best of intentions, something as God that is not truly God, that is idolatry. It's the equivalent of bringing the image of another into the marriage bed. Which is what? It's adultery. 
See, idolatry is adultery, and adultery, adultery is idolatry. Try saying that ten times fast, right? Idolatry is adultery, and adultery is idolatry, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual. Which brings us to question number four. What's the biblical punishment for adultery? Well, Leviticus is clear. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, you can jot it down, telling us if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And if we think that's a little excessive, like really? Then we simply have to look to the New Testament, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, again telling us that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for all sin is death. Now the question is why? Why is adultery deserving of death? And yes, it's because the Bible says so. But why does the Bible say so? Because of what it pictures. Marriage, that is, of what it pictures. Which is what? Christ's covenant with the church. So to commit adultery against one's spouse is to break the marriage covenant. And if marriage serves as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, then adultery is distorting this picture. It's actually, whether realizing it or not, it's promoting a false gospel. It's speaking an untruth to the world about the character of God. As do lives that claim Christ as Savior, but deny him as Lord. Because to be a Christian is to claim to be, or to claim to be a Christian means what? If we're, if we're claiming the name of Christ, what does it mean? It means that we're saying that we are married to Christ. That's the claim. That we are the bride and he is our groom. We're covenanted together by his blood. So then when our hearts long for satisfaction and fulfillment in the things of, of this world above and above Christ, when we refuse to faithfully and humbly submit to Jesus and to treasure him above all else, what are we doing in our hearts? We're committing adultery against Christ. We're breaking the first, second, seventh commandments. We can throw the 10th in there for good measure. There could be reason to make, say that we're breaking all of them. And let's be honest, who among us is not guilty? Who among us is not guilty? Which then begs the question, can we be forgiven of adultery? Can we be forgiven of our adultery? Yes. Yes, praise God, yes. But it's not a sufficient answer. Because in just saying yes, we miss out on so much. We don't see the extent of God's love in extending this forgiveness. Like, it's not just, oh, I forgive you. There's deep love and commitment from God that goes into this forgiveness. Neither do we see the, the hearts, what, it, what they look like when they receive this type of forgiveness. What, is, what does true repentance look like? Nor do we get to see how this translates into how we, we forgive others. So let's look at each starting with the extent of God's love and extending forgiveness for adultery. So turn with me, if you would, to Hosea chapter 1. It's one of the prophetic books. So if you turn in the middle of your Bible and you'll find Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And, and then you're going to hit the, pro, the prophets. You're going to go Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. 
All right, Hosea is the husband in the story and he's married to Gomer. Everything holding back regarding that name, like just why, right? And I'm gonna name my daughter Gomer, right? I don't get it. But Hosea here is literally living out the tragedy of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Meaning Gomer is the picture of unfaithful Israel and Hosea is the picture of God's faithfulness. So picking up in Hosea chapter one, verse two, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. So we can already see the difficult language that is here. But Hosea goes and he takes for himself an unclean bride, Gomer. And it's not like she was faithful and then became unfaithful. He took her as his bride, knowing her unfaithfulness. Just FYI, this is the gospel. This is the gospel played out very clearly throughout this story. God sending his son to claim an unfaithful bride. We we don't come to him pure and spotless and all put together. We come unfaithful and defiled by our sin. And let's be clear, we don't come looking for him either. We're the ones who are, are out committing sexual immorality with the world. He comes looking for us. Oh, what a great God we serve. Oh, what great love this God has for his people. But Gomer, like the nation of Israel, has proven herself unfaithful time and time again to her husband. And by chapter three, you can go ahead and turn over there. By chapter three, we're told she's abandoned her husband yet again and run off with yet another man. But notice that despite his wife's infidelity, God does not tell him to divorce her. In fact, he tells him to do the opposite. Saying in chapter three, verse one, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to the other gods and love cakes of raisins, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Church, there is nothing easy about these words. This is, this is painful stuff. Knowing, knowing your spouse is presently in the arms of another, has rejected you, hurt you, effectively spit on you, and the Lord says, go again, love her, invite her back into your bed, keep your covenantal vows, withhold nothing from her, Being honest, this is emotionally hard to to grasp. But what does Hosea do? He goes to her and he buys her back. (laughs) He goes to her and he buys her back. He he gives everything to buy her back. He's not just like, hey, what do I got in my wallet and we're gonna make this happen. He literally gives everything to, to buy her back. That church is God's continual pursuit and faithful love of unfaithful Israel. That's what we see taking place through all of the Bible who 
Israel, who has over and over and over again committed adultery against God. We've read it in throughout Exodus already. It's only going to continue. Yet he never, ever, ever breaks his covenant with her. Never. Never. Again, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. See, we're all Gomer. We're all Gomer. We're all spiritual adulterers. And yet God's love for his bride is so great and so committed. He sent his son to redeem us, to claim us out of our spiritual adultery. (laughs) See, we are all spiritual adulterers who have forsaken God's faithfulness for fleeting one night stands with the idols and the pleasures of this world. Every one of us. And we deserve for God to divorce us. But that will never happen if we are in Christ. That will never happen if we are in Christ. Why? Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. This is why I'm saying this message is encouraging. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. And that's what our marriages are intended to display to the fallen world. Huge expectations, right? Praise God for Jesus. Because none of us meet them. We are to display the gospel with our marriage. The relationship and the commitment between Christ and the church. Now the second thing there, the response of those who have been forgiven. So in other words, what does this look like for someone in Gomer's shoes? Someone who has committed adultery but is responding with with repentance and belief. One who is receiving forgiveness. What does this look like? Well, turn over with me to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51, in doing so, think of the life of King David. One who is described as a man after God's own heart. But what does he do? He commits adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba being the the wife of Uriah. And not only does he commit adultery with Bathsheba, he sends Uriah to the front lines of battle to, to cover up their sin. He has her husband murdered in order to cover up his sin. So David is guilty of here breaking both the sixth and the seventh commandment. We could get into a whole lot of others, the 10th as well. And, and how does he respond? Psalm 51 verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy upon me, O God. He responds by crying out to God for for mercy. Why? Because he's convicted over his sin and he knows what he deserves. He's not making any excuses here. He recognizes his guilt before God. And I ask you, church, do we? Do we recognize our guilt before God? Are we people who cry out to God for mercy because of our sin? Or do we not even really think twice about our sin in relation to God? And sticking with Psalm 51, what's David base his cry for mercy on? And this is key. Is it, is it all the good deeds that he's done to this point? Is he saying, well, all the bad that I've done will be outweighed by the good? Is is that what he's doing? No. No. 
He's basing his cry for mercy according to your steadfast love. To the steadfast love of God. He, he's basing his cry for mercy in the covenantal love of God. Does that describe you this morning? Basing your cry for mercy, that rest of knowing, yes, we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you are finding your rest in the covenantal love and steadfast love of God, who is the giver of mercy. Saying in verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10, create in me a, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Church, this is what repentance looks like. Yes, David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and his own family. But ultimately, verse four, he knows against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He knows that his sin is against God. Church, that's repentance. Our repentance finding mercy in the sacrificial blood of Christ. So when we sin... What are we to do? We run to the cross for mercy. When you sin, when we sin, we run to the cross for mercy. We run to the steadfast love of God who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I ask you this morning, is that you? Are you continually running to the cross for mercy? Are you trusting in the steadfast love of God for your salvation? If not, I invite you to. I invite you to. For if not, you will receive the just penalty for your sin. But there is hope and there is forgiveness that is found in Christ. Which brings us to the third part. Forgiveness applied. See, what the Bible teaches us, what Christ teaches us through the gospel is that adultery isn't the unforgivable sin, physically, emotionally, or spiritually. If that were so, none of us would have any hope, but we do. We who are in Christ, all of us, we have to realize we were spiritually speaking in the bed of another when Jesus took us as his bride and washed us whiter than snow. And even as his bride, we've proven ourselves unfaithful on more than one occasion. But he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what forgiveness looks like. That's hard. Nothing about this is, is easy. There, there's nothing about the cross that was easy. Meaning there's nothing about our forgiving another that's easy, especially in the case of adultery. I'm not saying this forgiveness is going to happen overnight. Trust has to be earned. So many things have to be worked through. I, I get that. But Hosea doesn't bring Gomer home for he and she to sleep in separate beds for the rest of their lives. He brings her home to be reunited as husband and wife and the intimacy that comes with that. It's the gospel. And if you've ever been cheated on physically or emotionally, you're feeling the pain and the tension. I'm feeling the pain and the tension here. And we can be sitting here like, I, I don't know if I can do that. We're gonna have to experience this to, to feel the tension. 
But remember, if you're in Christ, that's what Christ did for you. He forgave you. And that's the forgiveness that we're to extend to others as well. Oh, the testimony of this sends to a watching world about the love of Christ. The last question. What are we to do to guard against adultery? Yes, forgiveness is important. It's a wonderful gift of God's grace. No doubt, absolutely. Now think about the woman who was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus in John chapter eight. She leaves Jesus forgiven, no longer under condemnation for her sin. Massive grace extended there in that moment. Praise God for that grace. But it doesn't end with forgiveness. Jesus leaves her with one final command. Go and sin no more which is a call to pursue holiness, to not commit adultery again. So then the question is, how do we do that? Well, that's where we return to Matthew chapter five, where Jesus has made it clear that to even look upon another lustfully is adultery. He has set forth our guilt and our propensity for guilt very clearly. But then look what he does. Matthew chapter five, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you, you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And here's where I've been asked on multiple occasions regarding this passage, like, what does this mean? Like really, what does this mean? Is this just hyperbolic language, hyperbole here? And, 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 I, and I get the questions. Like we look at the text, it's like, that seems kind of harsh, right? Like tear out an eye, like cut off your hand. Maybe Jesus is saying we just need to get rid of things that, that cause us to sin. Like let's get rid of our, our cell phone and TV and the computer and the books and whatever. I've heard this interpretation many times and I'm not saying that to do that's a bad thing. That could be a very good thing. Have a problem with pornography? It's, it's rampant throughout our culture and within the church. Then set up every safeguard possible to protect yourself. All that is good and needed stuff. But that's not the extent of what Jesus is saying. So then we have to ask, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. That's what he says. And that's what he means. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right eye is the cause, the cause of your sin, then cut it out and be done with it. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So way better for you to go to heaven with one eye or no eyes or one hand and no hands than to be cast into hell fully together. That's what he's saying. But, big and important question, is our eye, our eyes, the cause of our sin? Is your hand the cause of your sin? Is your cell phone the cause of your sin? Is your spouse not giving you the attention that you desire the cause of your sin? No. So what is? Well, quickly flip over to Matthew chapter 15, just a few pages over. 
Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is talking about what actually defiles a person. Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, what causes us to sin. What he says in verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Continues on. See, our sin is the product of our heart. Sinful hearts produce sinful actions. Can a blind man still lust? Don't think about that too hard. Like, yes, a blind man can still lust. Why? Because his heart is sinful. Meaning behavior modification is extremely important. We must go and sin no more. That is the command. So need safeguards on your phone? Get them. Like, get them. Go and sin no more. Need to get rid of your phone or your computer or your TV, whatever, then do it. Take whatever drastic measure necessary. Need to get rid of your Facebook account so those temptations quit popping up. Need to separate yourself from certain people in your life. Do it. Use wisdom. But what we need more than anything is for God to change our hearts. Heart change is necessary to increase our affections and love for him above all else, for him to be and then to continually be our first love, that we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is what happens when we're sanctified. See, salvation includes our forgiveness, no doubt. Salvation isn't, doesn't happen without forgiveness, We're declared right before God when we are forgiven. That's our justification, a legal declaration of being declared right before God based solely on the blood of Christ. This is for everyone who believes. But everyone who is justified, everyone who is declared right before God, everyone who is forgiven of their sins before God is also sanctified according to Scripture. If you're not being sanctified, you've never been justified and forgiven of your sins. Sanctification being a lifelong process of growing in Christ-likeness that takes place in the life of every single believer. And it's not a straight line. It's not like, okay, death happens here and, and we're gonna be, we come to faith in Christ here and whoop, straight godliness the whole way. Doesn't happen that way. Sometimes it can be like a little line that goes like this, but progressively we're moving forward in our life in Christ likeness. This happens in the life of every believer. That's a process of growing in holiness. How does this happen? The Holy Spirit working in our life. Holy Spirit that's been given to the life of every believer. So when we become a new creation, we, we now desire to grow in godliness. May not know how, but we have a desire that we've never had before and we grow in godliness through learning and applying God's word. That's why it's so important to study and to memorize and to know God's word. Let him change us through his word, being sanctified through his word. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter four. Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica about this very thing what it looks like to live lives that are pleasing to God. In fact, we're gonna let these words be the words that we close on. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. The Lord saying through Paul, 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, matter, because the Lord is an adventurer in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you this morning, mindful that we are spiritual adulterers. We have sinned against you. Yet we're also reminded of your faithful and steadfast love. And we thank you for for loving us and pursuing us and forgiving us. Not on the basis of our goodness or our works, but completely on the basis of the work of Christ who came to redeem his bride. May we as the bride of Christ continue to grow in our love and devotion to you. May our marriages and our lives make much of the name of Christ and continually point those we encounter to the gospel. Help us to be a people who are marked by forgiveness for we have been greatly forgiven. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.